So don't just get hung up upon only prosthetically driven. It needs to be prosthetically driven. Don't get me wrong, but it needs to be biologically sound because you need both these components to get your implants longevity out of it. That was Dr. Varun Garg. This is the Newbie Dentist Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. Welcome to episode four of the five-part implant audio mini residency. I hope you have enjoyed the previous three episodes where we covered implant dentistry for the general dentist, the surgical aspects of implant dentistry, digital dentistry, and guided surgery. And in this episode, we are talking about the prosthetic restorative side of implant dentistry with prosthodontist Dr. Varun Garg. Dr. Varun Garg is a very well-respected uh, lecturer, educator, and prosthodontist here in Melbourne, Australia. I've had the pleasure of knowing Varun uh, from the time when he was a postgrad student studying at Melbourne Uni doing his pros degree, and he has become a good friend and a good mentor of mine over these past few years. Dr. Varun Garg does excellent work. I will link you to his Instagram page in the show notes so you can check out his amazing work. And in this episode, I pick Varun's brain about the restorative side of implant dentistry, how to plan, how to execute, and how to maintain your implant restorations to ensure the best chance of longevity and success. This week's episode of the Mini Implant Audio Residency is brought to you by my good friends at Mordent. Mordent is your proudly Australian-owned and operated partner, driving the charge forward in integrated digital dentistry. Being the only fully integrated local dental company, Mordent offers world-class education, equipment, products, solution, and support. The Mordent team of over 50 specialists are helping thousands of Australian practices to seize the opportunities in digital dentistry, transforming treatment for their dentists and the patients alike. Whether you're seeking to upskill through education or are considering implementation of digital dentistry into your practice, or just looking for some advice, I highly recommend reaching out to the Mordent team. Visit www.mordent.com.au to find out more. I will include their information in the show notes for those interested. As always, if you're new to the Newbie Dentist podcast, thank you for checking us out. Be sure to head back and check out the previous episodes that I've done on the podcast. I've had the privilege of having some amazing guests on the podcast over the past couple of years. If you're returning, thank you for your ongoing support of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I hope this mini implant audio residency is full of value for you. And if you are getting value, please head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. These ratings help the show get more traction within the dental community. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Dr. Varun Garg. Welcome back for another episode of the Implant Mini Audio Residency. I'm really excited to be joined by my good friend, Dr. Varun Garg, who is a specialist prosthodontist here in Melbourne, Australia. And in line with what we've talked about in the previous episodes of you know placing and restoring dental implants, uh, Varun, I thought we'd get you on and you know pick your brain a little bit about the restorative aspect of implant dentistry today. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Ahmed, uh, for the invitation. I'm very excited to be here. And uh, yeah, let's talk some implant dentistry. <laughs> so Varun, uh, if you don't mind, just for people who may not be familiar with yourself, just tell us a little bit about you first, sort of you know, what kind of work you're doing nowadays and your training, and then we'll get into the topic today. Uh, sure, sure. Thank you. Um, well, guys, uh, as uh, Omid mentioned, I'm a prosthodontist. I work in Melbourne. Uh, I am a Melbourne grad. I 
finished my master's program from University of Melbourne in uh, 2017. And uh, then I joined a practice which is where I am full-time now in the city called Prosthodontic Group. Um, I'm limited, my work is limited to prosthodontics. So I'm really concentrating on the pros aspect of things, not necessarily too much uh, to do with general dentistry and a very little surgery, if any. Excellent. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, but yeah, like rest, uh, if you want to go back in dental history, <laughs> I have graduated uh, from den uh, dentistry in 2007, worked as a general dentist for five, six years before I decided to do my master's. Uh, so that's how things have led up. And uh, pros has something which has always interested me. And um, I just thought if that's what I want to do, I should really specialize. And that's what drives me to get to the point where I am. Excellent. And we're excited to you know, have your experience on today and to talk about the restorative aspects uh, of dentistry. So I guess just to lay out the conversation a little bit, we're going to sort of keep with the same trend of restoring that 2.5 implant that I've talked to Dr. New about and Dr. Harry Schlen. Uh, but we'll, if we can, obviously you can answer these questions in a broader scope and maybe like more aesthetic cases and, and things like that. So um, I don't want to like you know, confine you just to that single implant site. Sure. Uh, so, but let's start off in terms of like your, your thought process, your treatment planning as in the patient has had the implant placed and they've come to you now to restore it. Um, it's got a healing abutment on it. How do you then think through the whole journey and the process? Talk us through that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, look, this is specific, as we said, to a two, five implant. So we'll talk about that first, and then we can maybe briefly talk about if it was, let's say a central site or a lateral site, because I think the way we assess uh, the different clinical situations can vary depending upon the position of the implant or the tooth that you're replacing. So in a 2-5 site, I mean, uh, I consider this 2-5 site always as a patient variable aesthetic or non-aesthetic site because some patients do have that very wide smile and, you know, big, 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 broad smiles where they even show up to their sixes and some up to their sevens. And in a situation like that, the 2-5 becomes an aesthetic rehabilitation, not just a functional rehabilitation. Yeah. So when... So I think this is where the first thing starts from that, you know, how wide is someone's smile, how up they go, uh, is this in the aesthetic zone or not? The second uh, would be obviously not just looking at the implant side, but looking everything else around uh, because when you're restoring either one or five implants, you always need to look what you have around those implants. What's happening in the mouth is the patient uh, patient factors and the oral factors is the patient a bruxer, you know, has the periodontal health, which hopefully now that the implants been placed, it's all been sorted. Mm -hmm. uh, so the patient uh, is at a point where they're stable and they're disease free. Uh, but we also need to see the opposing dentition. Has there been any super eruption of the tooth for if the, let's say two five was missing for a long time, we need to look at the patient guidances, uh, is this a tooth which is going to be a part of your future guidance occlusal scheme, or is this a tooth which is going to be quite protected by the natural dentition along the side? Is the patient a parafunctioning patient? Is there a lot of wear? Because all these factors are going to then impact how you restore it and how you maintain this implant, which I'm sure we will talk about as we go on forward. So this is, this is where I think my first appointment or, you know, hopefully this patient has been seen by me before the implant yeah. was placed, <laughs> but after 
the implant has been restored and I'm at a point where I've got to start with my definitive prosthesis, I usually see the patient, even if it's for a review half an hour, to make sure I can recalibrate my information and make my pros plan. Uh, and I usually still use, it might be a bit old fashioned, but I still use special trays for all my fixture head impressions. So that's all, also a good opportunity for me to pick up an alginate and get a, a special tray ready for the time when I'm going to take a fixture head. Perfect. So let's, I guess, I'll, let's break it up into steps. So uh, in terms of the impression taking, uh, are you still doing, you know, uh, you know, PVS and like analog sort of impressions, or do you rely more on like CAD um, or intraoral scanners? And sort of like what's been your experience with either one of those? Uh, look, um, frankly, at this stage, I would still say that majority of my work is analog style. And the reason why is because I haven't got to a point where I feel confident, not so much with single implant units, but if I'm doing multiple or cross arch. Uh, I think intraoral scanning is still not to a point where I can use it as my go-to in every situation. So uh, analog has not failed me yet and I'm quite comfortable doing it. Uh, so I am sticking to this so far. I am experimenting more and more with digital technology, but uh, I would say for my fixture heads, especially multiples, it's still very much analog. So I would, I would have to say that, yes, my go-to is still PVS. Uh, I still like to use, you know, open tray impressions where possible. And uh, yeah, it gives me another uh, opportunity to reassess things. I customize my impression copings if I need to. Mm -hmm. So that's what my go-to is at this point in time. Ask me in five years that you might get Maybe. a different answer. <laughs> so what's... Uh, you know, for people listening who are you know, maybe just getting introduced to implant rest restorations, and um, I guess that's where most people would start. They would probably start re restoring some implants before they start potentially placing some. Sure. Uh, what's some the pros and cons of like open versus closed tray technique, and sort of why have you personally, I guess, uh, veered towards open tray? Sure. Uh, look, uh, open tray is something. One, I was pretty much taught with this technique but I can see some merits in it as well. Um, it's not to say I haven't done closed tray. And if you look into the literature, really, if you're doing a single implant crown, doing open tray or closed tray does not make a huge difference as far as the literature is concerned. But what I sometimes try and avoid the fiddleness of that uh, closed tray, which means that you're taking an impression. So for those who might not be familiar with it, the difference between the two is uh, in an open tray, you're basically putting an implant impression coping onto the fixture. You pick that impression coping with your impression and you do not have to remove it from your impression. When you take your tray out, you undo the screw and the coping comes out with your impression and stays in it. Whereas in a closed tray, you take it, take the impression of the implant like a tooth prep, for mm -hmm. example, you take your tray out, but now you have to remove the impression coping from the implant and you have to manually fit it into your tray. Now that's the part which sometimes concerns me because as much as uh, nice these impression copings are nowadays, they're giving you more and more interlocking features. So, you know, you can place it in one position and one position only. I think that human error can still play a part and we're talking microns here. And sometimes in, or well, not sometimes, I, I can assure you in implant dentistry, even distortion of microns make a difference in the outcome. So I try and limit these errors. I mean, mm -hmm. having said that, I've been 
caught up in situations where I've had implants placed in such a way or so far back that I couldn't use an open tray. And I had to take an impression, one with closed tray, one with open tray within the same impression. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it worked fine. So it's not that it doesn't work. It's just that I like the predictability of open tray. Open tray technique. Which one would you say for a beginner is like less technique sensitive? Uh, look, technique sensitive, pro- I wouldn't call open tray technique or unsensitive, but it will need a little bit more experience. Mm-hmm. I would say, obviously, it's, it sounds and people find that comfort uh, in doing a closed tray because it's very close to how you would pick up a fixture. If anything, it's much mm-hmm. easier than even doing a crown prep impression because you don't have margins and retractions to deal with. Mm-hmm. So for someone who's doing for the first time, they will find, I would say, a closed tray easier but I would still go and say, if you're going to start with implant dentistry, try the open tray. I mean, there's not a lot that can go wrong in it. If till the time you can see the guide pin coming through your, uh, through your tray and mm-hmm. you can undo it and make sure that it's not engaging the implant anymore before you remove the tray, you'll be okay. Yeah. So in terms of the workflow, once you've done your impression and sent it off to the lab, what sort of happens next? Is there some sort of, uh, temporization process that you do and i guess we can open this up for maybe more aesthetic cases too if you would like to maybe mention like tissue conditioning and things at this stage or uh so sort of what what happens between your impression and when the final prosthesis get delivered and you insert it sure sure okay so i think i will go a step back just because we're talking about the workflow and let's talk Mm -hmm. about you know you mentioned that how do i temporize that and if there's a need for temporization now, usually the temporization in implant dentistry is twofold. You're doing it for two reasons. Number one is you're obviously giving patient a better idea of the final aesthetics uh, and you want to get rid of anything removable that they might have. And the second is to condition the tissue around your implant so you can develop your emergencies the way you want and you can eventually then copy that emergence into your final. So that gives you predictability. Now, in the two five side, as I said, not always, it's an aesthetic zone. So I don't always feel the need. So let's say if a patient had a removable provisional while they were going through the implant procedure, uh, sometimes it's a question that do you really want to make them a temporary beforehand? Mm-hmm. Uh, and because there's cost involved to it, there's time involved to it. And is that a cost that you can justify for the patient? And are they happy to pay that? But if the 2.5 is not in a very highly aesthetic zone for the patient and it's really they're going to see maybe half the tooth and not so much of the gingival tissue, then I think I'm very happy to go straight into a final restoration mm-hmm. after my impression taking. Whereas when we talk about, let's say, a central incisor yeah. and with a patient who has a high smile line, the things become different. And in that situation, the temporization or provisionalization will come before even I get to my impression taking because I would like to put a provisional in, condition the tissue, develop my emergence for at least a few weeks or maybe a couple of months sometimes so the tissue can mature before I pick up my impression because then I can use, as I mentioned, uh, a customized impression coping so I can guide the lab that this is the emergence I've developed in the mouth and Mm. please copy that. So so in a 2-5 site where there's no temporary needed, the healing abutment goes back on. And, you know, they, they're still for the next three to four weeks while the permanent is getting made, they use the provisional that they might have. And if they've already had a temporary implant crown made 
if let's say it's an interior or two five, which was in highly aesthetic zone, mm-hmm. uh, in that situation, I'd put the temporary back on. Perfect. So the patient comes, if it's a non-aesthetic case, just to make it easy, um, they got the healing abutment, you'll take it off, you put your impression coping, do your impression, put the healing uh, abutment back abutment. on and, and they're good to go. Excellent. Yep. So I guess the next step, I know after the impression taking, will come down to your design. And obviously, you know, I think in Melbourne is a, uh, like, I don't know if it's a bias is the right word, but you know, we prefer like screw retained if possible versus like cement. And I don't know if that's still the case. When I was in dental school, I think that's sort of the preference that we were shown and taught. So in, in nowadays, when you're restoring your implants with, you know, the experience and things that you have, how do you decide between like cement retained versus screw retained and, or even like cross pin? What are some of the factors that you go into the decision-making of how you decide your final restoration? Um, as I think you mentioned bias, I think that's quite a big word in implant <laughs> dentistry and we all have our biases. Uh, I am still of a very strong belief um, that implant restorations should be screw retained uh, because I like, having retrievability in my prosthesis. Uh, the longer you work in implant dentistry, you realize that complications is part of implant dentistry. No matter how good you are, and I think implant dentistry teaches us a lot about not having egos because everything we do, if you can do the best, sometimes it can still come back as a very unexpected complication. So I want to have that power that I can retrieve that implant crown with the least discomfort to the patient and hopefully the least cost involved to the patient and then get it repaired and you know whatever it might be because complications are such a broad range uh, of uh, you know things that could happen. And the other thing is, I think if I was to, or we were to go with the literature, I think the risks of developing complications because of a cement retained crown are far more as compared to the screw retained. And uh, cement retention, you know, excess cement retention is a big thing. Um, So I try and avoid, having said that, I'm sure at some stage I will be doing the cement retained because there will be a circumstance when I will have to, Uh, but you have to understand that I think your provisionalization, your abutment designing, your, um, you know, your protocols of how you're going to cement something becomes a lot more critical in cement retained implant dentistry as compared to the screw retained because you don't have that pressure of removing the excess cement and ability to being able to do that. So for me, uh, it is a lot still screw retained and I still use cross pins where I have to. Uh, My first preference of order would be if a screw retained rectal fixture crown can be done that if the implant is in a prosthetically driven position uh, then that would be my first go to my second would be an angle corrected screw if i can use and sometimes we have uh, implants which unfortunately get placed or can only be placed in an angulation which is too far out and in that case i'm going cross spinning because cross spinning is kind of a hybrid between a screw retained and a cement retained Mm -hmm. because you still have a little bit of a gasket to deal with, but that is a cement, which is almost so easy to remove, even if it is subgingival. And even if you leave something, it usually dissolves away. So uh, I think that's where my preferences lie rather than purely cement retained crowns. Excellent. With your 
you know, lab script and planning of the occlusion. So say the implant is in the correct spot. Um, you have the ability to go direct to fixture screw retain. Mm -hmm. Um, so from that regard, you're happy now and that's, that's okay. You've made that decision. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about like, you know, the theories of like occlusal overload and like obviously the differences and the challenges of restoring, uh, correct occlusion on an implant tooth versus natural tooth with the PDL and things that are in place. Uh, how do you account for these variances and, and plan your occlusion for your implant restorations? Sure. Sure. Um, so let's two things. I mean, number one, we said about designing the abutment. So in that situation, uh, as you know, there's so many different materials nowadays available as well for your abutment design. Um, my preference is still having a titanium abutment where possible because realistically um, you want to use some a material which is going to be biocompatible uh, in implant dentistry, which is uh, in the definitive part, it's really limited to uh, either titanium or zirconia. Mm -hmm. And the implants we're using more and more are internal connection implants. So I don't like putting zirconia within that internal connection if I can avoid it. Uh, so I would most likely would have some form of a titanium insert or a titanium abutment. And in a 2.5 side, I'm quite happy putting titanium abutment. I mean, it becomes a little bit more critical when we're dealing with, again, interiors, because if the tissue is thin and you're seeing the grayness, I mean, that's a whole different concept again. And, you know, we can talk about it for a long time to come. But uh, posteriorly in 2.5, I think it's still my preference would be a titanium abutment. I usually uh, discuss it with my lab and uh, they'll design, and most of these abutments are now CAD-CAM abutments. Um, so they would design it on the computer and before it is milled, I would I usually go and have a look to see how these abutments are because I want a profile or the emergence quite narrow under, under the tissue, but then gradually have that emergence develop. So we're not pushing the tissue too far out and we're not gonna create that recession but I still want to leave enough volume of the tissue around my implant collar so that, you know, we're not, we're not creating that excessive force and leave that enough room for the tissue to adhere to titanium. Uh, then if it is a director fixture crown, mostly it will be a titanium abutment with uh, an extra orally cemented crown on top of the abutment. It could be, you know, preference could be your PFM, zirconia, Emacs, whatever, you, you know, personal preference or the aesthetic requirement for the patient is. Uh, but when it comes to me, it's obviously direct to fixture crown because all the cementation, cleaning, everything has been done outside, outside the mouth. When it comes to the occlusion, and I think occlusion is very, very important in implant dentistry, yeah. and especially because, as you mentioned, with we have no PDL attachment. Implants are almost like, like enclosed to the bone. Mm -hmm. So everything that all the forces that go, they're directly transmitted to the bone or to the materials, obviously. And this is one of the reasons why we see chipping in implant prosthesis a lot more than let's say crowns yeah. on natural teeth because there is no give and the weaker part is what breaks off and usually that's the veneering ceramic of sorts so for a single implant crown my aim more often than not is to try and develop uh, the implant crown in a light occlusion when we say that it's it's almost in a way that i have a shim slide contact if a patient is biting 
I can take my slide, my shim out. It shouldn't be loose, but it should be able to slide out. Yeah. And if a patient clenches really hard, you can have a light contact as well. And this is implant protective occlusion. And in lateral guidances, if I can avoid that tooth coming into lateral guidances, then that would be my preference. So let's say it's a 2-5. Patient has a canine guidance. I want to keep the canine guidance, and I want this implant crown to be discluded. Yeah. Uh, I like to have firm interproximal contacts. Um, when I say firm, it doesn't mean that the patient feels pressure on the teeth, but I like it if anything a little bit tighter than, let's say, tooth-to-tooth -to -tooth contact. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't, we can't measure it, unfortunately, uh, but it needs to be firm enough that you hear your floss snapping when you're doing that mm -hmm. because teeth move, implants don't, and if that happens, I don't want a contact to open up, yeah. which happens, again, over the years. If the patient's growing, you see so often that your mesial contact points open up. And that's the other advantage why I want screw retained crowns. Yeah. So I have the ability to fix that because if a patient grows in five, 10 years and now they're getting food packing, I should be able to remove it, get it to the lab, add some ceramic and you know put the same thing back. If it's a cement retained, we can't do that. Yeah. And okay, so you've designed it, you've put the, you've checked the occlusion. Tell me a little bit about the, the try, like the, you know, insertion or fit uh, appointment, sort of what your workflow is there? Sure. I think uh, the insertion appointment starts on the model. And when I say that, it's because one of the most critical steps in implant dentistry is actually checking your abutments, your crowns, before you start putting them in the patient's mouth. And, uh, and I, many times I've seen, and I usually like to at least check my implant prosthesis a day before, because quite often I'll see that oh, there might be a rotational misfit or something, which means if I have a rotational misfit on my model, on my analog, and I can rotate, that means something's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. The of the prosthesis isn't as pristine, and I don't see a point why I need to try it in the mouth. And so it goes back to the lab and say something's not right. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's very critical. You need to check your finish of your prosthesis. You need to check your abutments that, you know, it's not been fiddled around. It's still nice and shiny, sharp line angles rather than being rounded off. So that's, I think, the first point. The second point is in the mouth, again, depending upon the patient to patient, uh, sometimes some of the patients we still numb up, even if I'm trying up, and depending upon how deep the implant was placed, how thick the soft tissue is, uh, usually I will try and get my surgeons or my periodontists to place healing abutments which are a little bit wider so that you try and develop that emergence within your healing abutments, which means when you try your crowns, is the pressure on the tissue isn't that much and yeah. they're quite comfortable. And it's, it's, you can get away without numbing the patient up. Yeah. But if it's very narrow, thin healing abutments, then you have to numb them up because you're going to be pushing that tissue and that can be quite uh, uncomfortable for the patients. Yeah. So what I'm checking then is once I put the implant crowning uh, into the implant and tighten it down, how much blanching is it creating? Uh, how, how much time does it take for that tissue that is blanched now to go back to pink? Because it should take within five to 10 minutes for that tissue to settle. And if it hasn't, that could mean that the pressure is too much and you might need to take the implant crown out, again, modify your emergence because you can otherwise create recession because uh, the blood flow to that tissue is getting mm -hmm. a lot. 
Um, so as I said, so that would be one thing. Then you look for your emergence and see, you know, how do you have very big triangular spaces or not around that tooth where the buccal margin of the tissue sits now is the tissue going back to pink and health. You check your occlusion, you check your contact. So that would be, uh, you know, your normal workflow for a single implant crown that you need to look for. Um, and obviously access for hygiene. So mm -hmm. sometimes it's with implant dentistry, I mean, as good as our surgeons are nowadays, but they have their limitations as well. We cannot replicate all the time exactly how the teeth were. Mm -hmm. And sometimes inevitably we get a bit of tissue loss and the patients sometimes can think, oh, I didn't used to have a black triangle around this crown, but now I do. Uh, so you need to explain these things to them because sometimes we can put too much ceramic there trying to close the black triangles, which then creates problems from hygiene perspective. Yeah. And, and this is something we need to educate the patients that hygiene is probably one of the most important factors that's going to dictate the long-term success. So, so you see, th those, those are the discussions better had with the patient before the implants are done. So at least when it comes to it, they're accepting of it, they understand it, and they're quite happy. So access for hygiene would be the other thing that is very important to check at the time. Sure. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that's also one of the other benefits of screw retain is you can, you know, before you cover your screw access hole, you can just screw down the actual crown, check everything you need to check. If you're happy with it, then you can cover it up. Or if you need to adjust it, you just take it off again. So I think that's one of the cool benefits of like the screw retain versus cementing it on. Because once you cement it in, it's kind of there and then you, it's hard to like take it off, to like make adjustments and things. Look, as, as much uh, as, or a uh, better word, the lack of cement retained implant dentistry in my case, uh, but I'm of the opinion that if you, if you want to do screw, uh, cement retained implant dentistry, you need to go through provisionalization phase because you need to design your tissue in a way that you can customize your abutments mm -hmm. so that your abutments are almost like your crown preps. So they're not like these narrow round abutments that your crowns are going to be very big and fat over them because you're never going to get to that cement, like the umbrella effect. So do you yeah. can say, yeah. <clears throat> so if you design, if your tissue is already contoured and then you design your abutment, so they flare out and your margins are almost supra gingival or just minimally sub gingival uh, and they're supporting the crown, then it's much easier to remove that because then the patient would know in your provisional that if there's going to be a black triangle in a provisional, there's going to be a black triangle when you're done. Yeah, excellent. So, so yeah, I think uh, provisionalization is a lot more important if you're going to do cement retained. Perfect. So the, I guess the two other things I want to just touch on quickly before we wrap up, and uh, I, I know these are huge topics, so it won't be like a comprehensive sort of analysis of it, but just to introduce the ideas and concepts and things to people. Uh, the first thing is post-insertion, what are some of the early issues that might come up? Like, you know, the things I'm thinking about is like screw loosening or uh, some patient discomfort if like the contact's not right or the occlusion's not right. Um, what are some of those common early issues that you see come up post-insertion? Uh, look, I mean, screw loosening, it's actually not that common complication anymore. And when I say that early screw loosening, because... Mm -hmm. 
The only time I find an early screw loosening happens is if you haven't seated your abutments properly mm -hmm. and if the screw wasn't torqued down. Because with the internal connection, these implants are designed so well nowadays that screw loosening is becoming less and less common. It was a lot more common in external hexes yeah. kind of dentistry and especially when screws were finger tightened. They weren't even talked down to with a torque wrench. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of literature, the old literature where the screw loosening was so high, it was the limitations of what we were doing. So now the screw loosening isn't really that big. Yes, it still happens mm -hmm. over a period of time. And I every now and then um, we'll get a patient who'll be like, oh, I feel my crown's moving a little bit. And that could mean anything, but the screw can come loose. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, uh, that I, I would not say so much in the early complications. I think what happens is your occlusion plays a big part in that. That's usually the main thing. And especially if during function, the patient might say, oh, I think I sometimes hit that tooth. Although you've checked your static contacts, you've checked, you know, you've made sure that there is no contact in the MIP. You always need to also check your dynamic occlusion mm -hmm. so that the patient's not running into the cusp and your cuspal inclines. Because uh, sometimes patients, especially patients who have worn or you know minimally worn dentition and they have flattish teeth, if you give them a beautiful implant crown which has almost 16-year-old written on it <laughs> in a 60-year-old patient, sometimes <laughs> they can run into that and that's when they Causing say... Issues. Correct. So, you know, those are the things you need to be aware of. You need to kind of let the other teeth be your guide, how you develop the inclination of those cusps. And you might need to round that off. Or, uh, or it could be, you know, like I think, and this is why I usually check the patients is because you need to teach them how to carry out hygiene around, which is a little bit different than your teeth. So sometimes they come in and you feel there's a bit of food and plaque and you need to then educate them that this is how you absolutely have to do it because they're still doing it according to them, but they might not be doing 100% job. So those would be the early things that I see more yeah. often than anything else. Perfect. So for the, you know, the dentist listening, they're they're going to be placing like their first few implants. They've you know gone through, they've placed the implant, they've restored it. Uh, the patient comes back for six month recall. What's, what should they be doing and checking to, you know, like similar to how you would check around your natural teeth and do your checkups. What are some like the implant specific things that they should do in these recall appointments to make sure you get as much longevity as, as possible for the implant? Like what's some of the maintenance things that you, you recommend? So, uh, so as I said, I think when I do my maintenance, I pretty much have the same checklist of what I did at the time of my initial restoration, because mm -hmm. I want to check that the occlusion hasn't changed because as we said, teeth move, implants don't, and mouth is a dynamic environment where things are changing. Not so much as quickly in six months, but over a couple of years, many times you see that the implant crown might be in a higher occlusion now as where you designed it and might need that little modification. Uh, teeth move, so your contact points, again, can open up. So mm -hmm. you need to verify that. But usually in a six-month recall, it's really I'm very particular about my hygiene. Am yeah. I seeing any, you know, gingival inflammation? How's the tissue looking? Are they, are they bleeding? I mean, sometimes they say bleeding on probing, but you can make any implant bleed if you probe hard enough. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So 
So I don't like to probe unnecessarily around my implant crowns. But when we say probing, it's very gentle. If I run a probe near the tissue and it's bleeding, that means it's not healthy. But I don't yeah. want to go in all the way down because one, the patient will hate you forever. <laughs> You're going to make it bleed. Yeah. Uh, if visible uh, plaque, visible calculus around it, that I don't want to see. So, you know, it's more of an hygiene check mm -hmm. plus verification of your occlusion and your contacts at every point. Uh, and ov obviously checking for if you're seeing any cracks in the ceramic, if you're seeing any early chipping of the ceramic, which again goes to that you might have missed something in the occlusion or it is one of those patients who's just going to hammer your prosthesis. So that discussion about uh, occlusal splint, if you've not already had one with them, might be, might be something to discuss. Yeah. And in terms of cleaning around the implant, can you just use your normal ultrasonics or is there a risk of damaging like the implant in any way? Uh, do you just clean it as you recommend your dentist, like clean it as normal or is there any specifics or protocols? Uh, look, usually when you're flossing around the implant uh, crowns, there's, there's multiple ways and there's a crossover technique where you're using the floss around, you put, a, put it around mesial and distal of the implant crown, then you cross over and you go in and out. Mm -hmm. uh, some of my periodontists don't like that idea because they think, you know, you're creating too much damage in the tissue. Uh, and they recommend that you go along the mesial, cuff the tooth, towards the, you know, the opposite side and then go in and out. Mm -hmm. So I think either or is fine if you do it properly or well enough. For singles, it's not that different. When you're talking about big full arch prosthesis, that's where, that's where the, or, you know, big bridges on implants, where the maintenance or the hygiene takes a little bit longer. So again, this is something we need to discuss at the time of insert with the patients. <coughs> Sorry. If there is pontics involved, you need to show the patient how to get under the pontics mm -hmm. using either your super floss or dentex flosses, uh, you know, whatever you're using for the patients. Or if it's really big full arch prosthesis, sometimes I'm recommending water picks as well, especially yeah. for the elderlies where they might not have the dexterity to get to the, all the implants. And because, you know, I'm in a prosthodontic practice, which is one of, you know, maybe it's been around for 30 years or longer because I'm the fourth generation of prosthodontists. So I, I see patients who've had implants done in eighties and nineties. Yes. So they are now getting old and they might not be able to maintain things as well as they could maybe 20, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. So for them, we need to provide for things which are a bit more easier. So, you know, that's where these water peaks along with your mechanical uh, of interdental brushes, your super flosses come in and you just need to find what can work for each patient and where they feel comfortable because doing something is at least better than doing nothing. Excellent. Uh, that was great. I mean, we covered a lot. We talked about the initial planning phase. We talked about impression techniques, uh, different designs, occlusion, the trying appointment, some of the post-op uh, review care. Any Anything else that you want to mention before we wrap up in terms of important aspects of restorative uh, implant implant restorative dentistry that we haven't touched on that you think might be valuable for a beginner? Uh, look, I think it's all, uh, it's all in your planning. Um, and this is, uh, this is why I was saying that if this implant has come to me for restoration, hopefully I was involved in the initial steps yeah. at some stage. Um, usually, I mean, singles, you know, once your surgeons, you're working with surgeons who do this day in, day out, 
they pretty much know what needs to be done, but it's still good to be involved with your planning phase. Uh, we, we were very heavy on prosthetically driven implant placements, yeah. which I have kind of over the years modified. It still needs to be prosthetically driven, but it needs to be biologically sound. Um, and I think that concept is very important to grasp because you still want your implants placed in a position where you can restore them properly, but I don't want them to be placed half outside the bone because that's the perfect position or put the patient through extensive amount of grafting when they have good native bone. So it still needs to be in the native bone or it needs to be in the position where they're going to be more biologically sound. But I need to, I like the idea of knowing that I'm getting this implant placed in this position, which means I will be using an angled screw later because we have those facilities now, which we didn't have before. So, so don't just get hung up upon only prosthetically driven. It needs to be prosthetically driven. Don't get me wrong, but it needs to be biologically sound because you need both these components to get your implants longevity out of it. So very important. And, uh, and as much as I hate to say, implant complications are going to be part of your life. Uh, you can do everything right and uh, things can still go wrong. So it's not necessarily because you did something wrong. It's just the nature of the beast. Uh, I tell these patients that implants are not without their own set of problems and they need to be aware of that before you commit them to implants. And uh, please don't say implants are forever because we can't <laughs> say that. <laughs> no, I think that's that's an excellent point. I think it's a really nice one to kind of tie in everything together uh, in terms of previous episodes and this episodes in terms of implant dentistry being a nice balance of you know surgical planning, uh, executing it, restoring it. But these two, like, you know, that Venn diagram of like prosthetically driven cert- and biologically driven, that middle point has to be like the sweet spot. Um, you may have to give a bit of a concession from the restorative. Maybe you can't go direct to fixture and you got to do angled. Uh, at the same time, you can't just pick the easiest place to put the implant to just put it there because it's easy surgery. Um, so I think that's a really cool thing. And I think that's why it's, it's a tricky uh, thing for a lot of people to kind of get into because uh, there's a lot of considerations. There's a lot of variables. There's a lot of techniques and things that have to kind of go really well throughout the whole process and the journey of planning, placing, restoring, yeah. and maintaining. So uh, thanks a lot, Varun. I think that was really cool. A lot of interesting insights, a lot of good uh, overview of restorative dentistry. And uh, I think the listeners will get a lot of value out of it. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, uh, I am hoping so too. And uh, yeah, if there's any questions, please uh, feel free to let me know. And I'm happy to answer if there's anything further the listeners wants to know that. Excellent. I'll put the, I'll put your Instagram and things in the show notes. So if people are looking for Varun, if you haven't already heard of him, um, he's a great teacher and a great mentor. So you can definitely reach out. Thank you. Very kind. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. For all show notes and to access all previous episodes, head over to www.newbedentist.com. Have a great day.